This is an interesting one for me. Never actually played this game before, so I was kind of going in as a newbie. Uh, initially, I was going to put this as one of the new categories that I've, I've thought about doing in the past, you know, the, the outsider's perspective. Because, you know, I'm not usually what you'd call a fan of anime-style games or uh, this kind of combat. But at the same time, I'm not sure there is any other kind of game that has this kind of combat. And any anime elements within this game were so subdued that they were practically non-existent. So instead, this just felt like a good game. So I'm not really sure I could call this an outsider's perspective. Again, this is my first time playing through this game, so take that for what it's worth. I did love the art style. I thought it was very well done and actually added... Uh, it was a good use of the pseudo-cell-shading look to it and added to the overall visual presentation. In fact, um, it also made me kind of weird it out. See, every time people have brought up Valkyria, Pro Pro uh, Valkyria Chronicles before... I'm pretty sure I've been mistaking it with another game that came out around the PS1 era. And I kept looking at this like, wow, this game looks really good. They did, get, they, they did a really good job on the remaster for this. Uh, oh, wait, no, this game came out in the PS3 era. In fact, uh, I found out this game came out after another game, uh, Final Fantasy XII. And some parallels can certainly be drawn between the overall story structure of FF12 and this game. Not accusing it of anything, actually quite the contrary. I found it to be interesting because this game does a couple of things better than that game, and that game does a couple of things better than this game. Shrug. Let's, let's, let's try to focus on the combat for now. I had the hardest time writing notes. In fact, I've only got like four notes about the combat and the gameplay in general. See, the problem here is, usually when I'm sitting down to do a rumination, I don't... For those of you who are new to my show or don't really know how I do this, I write, I write down things that I think are worthy of discussion. In other words, if... Obviously, I'm just sitting here alone in my little studio with, with my green screen and my camera, but if there was another person sitting right there, what I am writing down is as if there was another person there and the stuff I would like to talk about with them. Now, of course, that doesn't quite work, but it's the same mentality in my mind. You know, the things that I would like to bring up and discuss. I'm not saying these are the only things worth talking about in general, the only things worth bringing up, but that's why this is more of a rumination than, say, a review, for example. Uh, so, when I was going through the gameplay, I just kept staring at the gameplay like, what do I say about this? I, I really don't know what to say about this, like, pseudo-turn-based pseudo action based not quite like over the shoulder except also fps kind of a thing I, I don't know what to say about it so i'm gonna say a couple things that i did note down here about the gameplay first of all i love the maps they are i i I've, I've got a little bit of a nostalgia factor on that one i love war strategy maps in general I used to just peruse maps of the American Civil War, World War One, World War Two, back in my local library back when I was in school. This is not a joke. And uh, I love this the way that they're beautifully rendered and they're beautifully drawn, and I love how it, there's just enough of a stylized of it that you can believe that it's actually a command map that someone's actually looking at and giving orders. It's, it's a nice touch. I love that. And I like that terrain does actually matter. Although mostly in the sake of cover or line of sight, as it probably should for a game that literally has a, a shooting element to it. The thing that weirds me out is the, you know, I don't even remember what the game calls them, but the advantages and the disadvantages, you know, going back to the old GURPS model. Because 
some of the advantages, I, I feel like, and I don't know if this is on purpose, they're really imbalanced. Like, some characters have really useful advantages, like, uh, what is it, action or a hard worker, I believe is what it's called, where, where you get a, you have a chance to get a second action just, just for free. Or, uh, you know, the one that allows you to get really, really good headshots if you're in a certain range, that kind of a thing. And then there's the advantages that are basically completely useless, like, I'm really good on desert maps. Okay, that'll be useful, what, twice? <laughs> and then some of the disadvantages are the exact same way. Some of the disadvantages are, yeah, okay, whatever. But then some of the disadvantages are horrifically nightmarish. Like, occasionally I'm just not going to take uh, follow orders. Or, like, there was a sniper who had something where he was afraid of heights. A sniper who was afraid of heights. You know, it's like, oh my god. And so it meant that I, a lot of my tactical decisions kind of boiled down to mostly thinking about the advantages and disadvantages and really not a lot else. And I don't know if that was deliberate or not. Because cover, of course, mattered. Terrain, you know, trying to do advanced movement maneuvers. Saving my CP. I do like, I'd like the CP-AP system, by the way. CP being, the way I always thought of it was CP was like a function of my uh, command ability. And AP is a function of their combat ability. And thus, like a merger of those two systems makes sense to me. In fact, I kind of have some ideas of my own of doing something in a similar vein in the future in one of my own games. Um... <clears throat> Probably a tabletop game, not a video game, but still. And so I like the idea of, all right, I'm going to, you, go forth, okay, and you go over here and draw fire. But of course, well, actually, hang on, well, if I put this person here, then they're going to be next to this person who has, you know, hate Darkson, and I don't want that there, So, I, but I need someone else up there, but I can't get them up here, so I'm just going to have this person go over here instead, save my CP for this round, let the enemy take an action, and then use my bonus CP to double move these two people all the way up into position while this person is far away from them. That kind of a thing. It, it did engage me. I was having fun with it. I just don't actually have a lot to say about it. Um, one, the only thing that really bothered me about the gameplay is that the enemies basically getting free hits, like, it felt like I was constantly under threat of attacks of opportunity, for those of you who know what that means. And the whole game, I'm like, the other major factor I was taking into my equations was, okay, he's going to attack me if I move here, and he's going to attack me if I move here. Um, and there's no, like, drawing fire, because it's just whoever you're controlling at the time. So it's just, do I have enough health to make this advance under fire? Yes, I do. Okay. I don't know, something about that whole system struck me as just a little bit off, and I'd have to really think about how I'd want to fine-tune that. Maybe make it so that the enemy has a limited number of attacks of opportunity they can make per your turn. That would enable you to effectively, to use an XCOM term, to bait out the Overwatch. So instead of, you know, you move this guy, he gets attacked, you move this guy, he gets attacked, you move the first guy, he gets attacked, and then the enemy is you know done with their... Uh, reaction for that turn so the second guy doesn't get attacked at all enabling you to to spread out the damage more and basically have a little bit more tanking going on with regards to your strategy i don't know just just food for thought um <clears throat> i do like the cutscene approach in this game and at first i didn't think i would uh, my first gut reaction was oh god really now let me explain what i mean by that because i know it's probably gonna upset some of you i like 
I, I love good, proper visual directions and visual storytelling. I can name two games right off the top of my head that do excellent visual storytelling and do stuff with in the background or with what the characters are moving or how the camera's framed that help to tell the story regardless of dialogue. Final Fantasy XII and The Witcher 3. Uh, both of those games have amazing visual storytelling and do a lot of presentation that, that tells more than the dialogue does. So, when I see a game that has so few actual cutscenes, I mean, there are some, of course, but there's so few actual cutscenes. Most of the cutscenes are box with animated head, box with animated head, box with, well, you know, some, some action in the background, then box with animated head. I'm like, oh, come on. But I started thinking about it. Realistically, this is a good in-between. Because now what we have is... Most games would have just done dialogue, just dialogue dumping all of those cutscenes. This game realized, the developers of this game realized, or maybe they didn't, and I'm just assuming too much, that doing the whole thing in full cutscenes is just not feasible. Either it was going to take too much time, or too much money, or they didn't have a good visual director, or, you know, th there's something in the way from a real-life perspective preventing them from doing fully cutscene-style games, so they don't want to just do text like most games would and still do. Why don't we do something that has at least something that helps bring the player into the moment rather than just a dialogue box? And I think this is a good uh, compromise there, having the whole, uh, you know, animated faces thing. I feel like the Tales of uh, game does something similar, although I haven't played a Tales of game in many years at this point, so I might be mistaken on that. I'm thinking of the vignette system specifically, if, if, if I'm remembering the right thing. Anyways, um, so I was originally going to do a gag before we get into the plot here. I actually have my copy, my PS4 copy of FF12 uh, right here, and I was going to be like, so we've got an empire that's invading from the east that, that's going after a kingdom in the, uh, you know, another empire in the west, and for some reason they, they're invading this miniature kingdom in the middle in order to obtain a valuable resource, but all of that's actually just a ploy to get access to a fantastical mineral that's going to get, oh god, you know, I was going to do a big joke like that. Because my, the joke was intended to be that FF12 took inspiration from this game. As I mentioned, this game actually came out two years after FF12. And then I decided that I didn't want to sound mean, because it's all in good humor. I, I'm, I'm not bashing either game. So I decided not just, just to tell you about the joke rather than actually do it. So I do like the setup. Now let me... <clears throat> Let me uh, stretch my history geekness for a second here, my war geekness. I used to, I haven't did a long time because I don't know anybody anymore, but I used to run in alternate history geek circles. A lot of people, we'd, we'd just ch chat and chat and chat and chat about, okay, what if the Battle of the Bulge went the way of Germany? You know, in, 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 and what if uh, the, or wait, not the Battle of the Bulge, sorry, the Battle of uh, Kursk, my, my bad. Not the Battle of the Bulge, wrong thing, wrong war. What if the Battle of Kursk went in the way of Nazi Germany? What if um, the League of Nations never failed, actually succeeded from the beginning? What if World War I had been delayed another ten years, so the technology was much more dangerous and deadly when it finally erupted? You know, alternate, alternate scenario stuff like that. It was just fun for war and history geeks like me to sit down and speculate on that kind of stuff. Now I bring that up because I've noticed that a lot of other writers, you know, in terms of uh, TV shows, books, uh, animes, and games have done these kind of alternate history scenarios over the years, and they vary in quality. 
what tends to happen is in my in my experience what tends to happen is you have an alternate history thing especially when it comes to a uh, Japanese made ga made game and then that alternate history is interesting and then it's basically flung out the window in favor of a completely separate plot that the alternate history was just an excuse for uh, some fans of my show may recognize that from my own storytelling so I was really pleasantly surprised to see how they handled the alternate world war you know Europe thing here at first, I wasn't decided if it was a very deliberate, very obvious in a World War II analog, or if that was just the surface level. But the more I dug into it, the more I believed oh, it was a deliberate alternate history scenario. Um, in fact, according to developers, uh, Gallia was actually based off of Bel uh, excuse me, the Netherlands. And if you actually look at it, it has a lot of parallels to real-life Belgium during the Second World War. So... I like what they did with this because here it's not just a typical alternate World War II scenario. You know, what if the Blitz didn't succeed? You know, what if it was an, it was a, a Soviet advance instead of a Nazi Germany advance? You know, that that's a typical alternate history thing. In this case, it's more like, what if the skeleton of what happened, the the the, the, the base structure of the Great War and World War II happened? but under different circumstances, different nations, different environment, different people, different setting. And that's how they approach this. And I think that works better than most of the typical examples that I've given before. And the whole game, I was waiting for it to get JRPG-E, if you know what I mean. Now, I, that may sound like a weird statement since I am a huge fan of JRPGs, obviously, but you probably do know what I mean by that when I say that. I'm, don't, I'm not going to spoil anything, but all I'm going to say is Type Zero pulled this off. But to explain without going into specifics or details, a lot of games have a very grounded feel to it and a very you know, base, you know, okay, here's this and war and history and politics and all that, and then the devil shows up in order to fight God in, in, in the cosmos, you know, or, or something along those lines, you know, it just, it just skyrockets out of reasonability and into la-la land for the final act. There are a lot of games that do that. But this one never did. When they first introduced the Valkyria, um, I gotta look at her name. Selvaria. I, I don't know why. I, won't, I keep wanting to call her Belvaria. I have no idea why. When Selvaria was first introduced, and, well, I shouldn't say when she's first introduced, but when she first shows off her powers in the desert, um, my first reaction was, oh, here we go. Okay. I mean, I was expecting this. But even the Valkyria powers are just stronger than others. Like, it basically puts a Valkyria on par with, say, a very, very capable tank you know, group. And I like that. I like that this whole game stays so relatively grounded. I like that there's effectively not even magic in this setting. I mean, it's this Ragnite. But if you sit back and think about how Ragnite functions, it's just a parallel for a lot of... Well, for oil, obviously. But, I mean, it's not like Tiberium or uh, Phazon, or uh, Red Lyrium, or, or any of the other type of materials that can do just all sorts of amazing things, like the whale oil in Dishonored is another good example of this. It's a, a resource that can be used to power things, to, f to make things function, and to make a few things heal, and to make a few things be destructive, but all of that is stuff that makes perfect sense within its own thing. And again, virtually everything that Ragnite can do 
real life oil can be made to do as well. So it stays nice and grounded. It makes it so that the army matters. It makes it so that the politics matter. It makes it so that the individual soldier matters. Now, don't mistake me. I like a good high-tier setting as much as anybody. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Warcraft setting. So, I, you know. But it is a nice break to have a setting that starts low-tier and stays that way. Like the highest-tier thing, Selvaria and Alicia, both are still only somewhat stronger than everything else. You know what I mean? It's not like they could destroy whole continents with a wave of their hand kind of power. No, it's, it's just they're a lot more durable, and they can hit like a truck. So I very much enjoy that. Um, there was now, uh, so I've, I've, I've gushed about this thing. I love the setting. I love the presentation. of. I wish, uh, see, here's the next thing I want to talk about. I know there's a Valkyria Chronicles 2, although from what I understand it involves some kind of Civil War thing. I don't know exactly what's going on with that. I, I don't know details. But I do know that... On the one hand, I both lament and cheer their decision to have such a small story in this game. I lament it because I want to know more. I, w I want to see more of this game. In fact, I want a full strategy game in this setting. I, I would love to have a Valkyria Chronicles RTS or you know 4X tile you know grand strategy war game. Something you know a typical war strategy game would be awesome for this kind of a setting. But. I still praise its decision to keep that story so small because because this is still basically an RPG in its own right. I mean it's not quite an RPG, but this is let me put it, let me rephrase that. This is still a story focused game. And in a story focused game, it, it this is universally true, the more scale you add into it, the harder it is for the player to really get a sense of the scope of what's going on. This is just basic human f f uh, psychology. This is, this is nothing new. You know, I, 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 when this goes really, really badly, I refer to this as Doctor Who syndrome. Tens of billions of years and trillions of troops are wiped out by hundreds. You know, you lose a sense of scale after a while. But this is following a squad of like, what, like 30 people total uh, throughout the course of the game. And that keeps it very small. You're following one group and their actions on behalf of one small nation on behalf of their actions in the scope of a much larger war. And keeping that camera all the way down here at that level once again adds to that whole grounded nature of the story. It got to the point where I actually, I can't even believe I'm saying this, I actually gave a damn and started caring about Velkin and Alicia by the end of the game. And I was like, God, yes, no, you, no, what are you doing? Don't kill yourself, no, God, you know. <laughs> and and when, when, oh my God, with, with Isara, that actually caught me by surprise. And, and you know what, I'm, I, that's way down in my notes, but I'm going to talk about this really quick. So Isara was interesting to me because, you know, very skilled engineer, which is very apropos because she is a support mechanism in three different ways. Uh, one, for the characters emotionally. She's the one who's always there, you know, we got this, and, and, and providing some support and relief and, and moral aid. Second, because she's literally an engineer and helps maintain the frickin' uh, the, the tanks and the mecha uh, mechanics, and of course, building that plane. But third, she's also a support mechanism for the player. I don't know if you caught this. Isara's unique situation and being a dark sun helps her to be a a form of exposition for the player that kind of flows 
not perfectly naturally, but it does still flow much better than you know someone who literally just sits down and starts expositing for an hour. Uh, so we got to learn a decent amount about the setting because a lot of the setting goes around her thanks to her position as a dark son, as the adopted daughter of the general, as a skilled mechanic, you know, we learn about the technology, we learn about uh, the racial prejudice, all that fun stuff, thanks to her. So three different ways she is a support mechanism. And the reason it surprised me so much is the whole game, I'm trying to think how to put this, didn't feel very dark. Now I'm told the manga for this is much, much darker. And of course, the, one of the game's central themes is, you know, the, the consequences of war. In fact, I have a quote here, which I'll get to in a moment. It's actually, I don't know if it's a quote from someone, it just came to mind, so it might be, I might be quoting myself here, I'm not sure. Uh, feel free to correct me if it's a quote from someone else. I'll get to that in a moment. But, in a game, or a movie, or a book, or whatever, which is really trying to showcase how messed up war is, you don't have a situation where two soldiers barge into a room with a pregnant woman and her daughter, and all they do is make fun of her. I mean, they even talked about how they were probably going to shoot them, and then they never did. Like, I was actually genuinely expecting in that initial cutscene for them to be like, Ha <laughs> what? ha, what's wrong with her? Oh, she's pregnant? Ah, two for one! And I figured that's the way the story was going. But most of the presentation of the story is a lot lighter. There's no other way to put it. It's a lot lighter of a look at war. Yes, we see the consequences of war, but it's in a very... I don't know how to put it. It's, it's a light, L-I-T-E. It's a light version of the consequences of war, you know? So I wasn't expecting Asara to just be shot. As soon as... I mean, the whole rosy thing probably should have been a signal to me, but just the tone of the game in general didn't make me think it was going that way with it. So that caught me. So here's, here's my quote, because this, this is the tone and the theme of the game, in my opinion. War is paid for with the blood of the common folk. Again, I don't know if that's a quote from someone or if that's just a quote from me. But it's true. Especially war in, like, older eras, you know? When noble lords go to war, who pays the, the price of that war, right? Maybe it's a Game of Thrones quote. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, let me, let me rewind on my notes here a bit. So, there's not a lot of politics in this game, which I found surprising, because there's a lot of room for politics. We see a little bit with Borg, and I actually wrote down their names, because Daemon and Townshed, you know, we, we see a little bit of politics with them. But all of that's really overt, obvious, dumb stuff. You know, it's, it's basically the, the wild flailings of the aristocracy, the fat and the stupid, respectively. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to smack General Damon every time I saw him. It was so satisfying to watch him get killed by a nuclear weapon, or equivalent thereof. But, uh, it's so it, instead the focus is far more on the actual... <sighs> the war itself... And the, and the actual actions and movements of the war and the development of the setting, of course. And obviously a very tight focus on the characters, although one thing I found weird is that aside from the principal characters, I didn't have a lot to talk about. Like, Rosie's character arc was good, but I don't have much else to say other than Rosie's character arc was good. It was nice to see something I've talked about before. Now, I'm going to get into something that's probably going to get me in trouble, but whatever. Uh, it has always been my belief that there's two type of uh, racial prejudices. There's real racial prejudice and fake racial prejudice. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Real racial prejudice is something that 
I don't actually understand. It's it's kind of an alien thought to me. But the general gist of it, from from how I try to comprehend it, is you dislike such and such. Doesn't matter what. I, I, let me make up something. I just B12 vitamins must die. You know, so okay, you dislike B12 vitamins, and you don't have any rational reason for that. You don't have any particular driving motive for disliking B12 vitamins. You just think B12 vitamins are 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 inferior to you know, B6 vitamins. I mean, duh. Obviously, B6 is better. It's a lesser number or something. It. I don't know. Point being, that's it. That's real racial bias, real racial prejudice. Then there's fake racial prejudice. Now, I call it fake because, and this, I've, I've seen this more in fiction than in real life. Uh, so someone b believes a lie or is misinformed about B12 vitamins. And as a such, they look at that like, oh, B12 vitamins are terrible, but they don't really think that. They are led to think that based on the information at their disposal. And when they are when that information is corrected, they're like, oh, well, I guess they're okay then. You know, Waka and FF10 would be a good example of this type of a thing. You know, he completely gets over his prejudice for the Albed because he is he is misinformed on the situation and he starts to see what an actual Albed is like in person and he's like, Well, you're fine. Hmm. You know? So Rosie is the second category, obviously. Ah, oh, you guys suck. And she even says it, like, what, five times? Ah, oh, you, you suck because you destroyed the, the stuff. You suck because you destroyed this stuff. Blah, 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 blah. But as she gets to know Isara throughout the course of the game, that just kind of slowly melts away and melts away. One nice little touch. Uh, I mentioned earlier the disadvantage system. There's actually disadvantages. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like hates Darkson or something like that, which is, a, which is kind of a crappy uh, disadvantage to have because you don't want to group those people up. Rosie never has that. <laughs> Which makes sense in context. Uh, let's talk about the war itself. One of the things I like about the war is that it serves both the, the war concept of a story and the fantasy concept of a story. Obviously, the Empire, the aristocratic blah, 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 wanting to invade and conquer uh, Gallia makes perfect sense. It would be an excellent puppet state to help launch their attacks on the Federation. It would be an excellent resource hub for them to turn this into you know, a, a production factory for Ragnite for the rest of their forces. You know, There's plenty of reason for doing that. And so it's logical that Maximilian would be able to convince them of that. But if you sit back and think about it for a minute... Tactically speaking, it was the wrong move to make at the time it was made. They were already in the throes of full-out war on the southern fronts, remember. And winning, it's worth noting, it would have been far smarter to do, like, five other strategies I can think of off the top of my head, not the least of which being claiming enough territory to completely cut off Gallia and try to politically or diplomatically force Gallia to heal. Or allow the Federation to make an alliance with Gallia and use that as a further casus belli to claim even more territory in the future. You know, there's all sorts of stuff they could have done, but instead they, did, they basically redirect a, a large amount of materiel and troops to go after Gallia under the pretext of getting the Ragnite. Now, if you're paying attention, if you're a war, a war buff, you might recognize some av actual Nazi Germany strategy here, and if you're a war buff, you also know that it was the wrong strategy in real life, too. I'm not going to get into that right now. All I'm going to say is, this, it, it's fascinating to me because it's one of those excuses that makes sense on the surface, but when you look at it, you're like, well, hang on a second. Because that was never his intention. 
That was never Maximilian's motive. He wanted the fantasy, the fantastical power of the Valkyria. Now, he already had Salvaria, of course, but he wanted the... The Valkov? God, I can't remember how to pronounce it all of a sudden. You know, the, the Doom Gun. He wanted the Doom Gun. He wanted to get in there and have us his super weapon and use that as a way to establish his personal empire. So the motives for this war suddenly make a lot more sense. Even more so because he basically brought his own personal cabinet in order to engage in this war. Oh, while we're on the subject, if I may be so bold, the a lot of comparisons are made to the empire and the whole uh, Nazi Germany thing. But the more I played the game, the more I think they actually fit another organization better. The HRE. I'm honestly curious how many of you agree with me on that. On the off chance you didn't understand the acronym, I'm referring to the Holy Roman Empire. Because if you really, there's not a lot of, of, of upfront lore about the Empire, except for the fact that they're actually like what, 20 or so completely disparate nations who have all their own aristocracy and princes and kings and all those people who are all kind of forced together into this one pseudo-union kind of a thing. I suppose another comparison could be made to Austria-Hungary during, uh, during the Great War, but point remaining. So, invasion, go. War of resources, go. I like, uh, I already mentioned the smaller focus thing. I already mentioned the Ragnite powered economy, which is fantastic. I also like the fact that the Ragnite, which is effectively what this current economy sits on, runs on, is also what powered the Valkyria, or the Valkyrer. God, I forget how they pronounce that, but the, the Valkyrer back in the old days, that they were just v particularly advanced in using the same tools that we are using. Again, keeping things nice and grounded, usually. Excuse me, almost every JRPG type thing has a ancient race. You know, the Cetra or you know, the, uh, the Ronkins or and all that fun stuff. Here we have the Valkyrie, but they are still pretty low tier. I mean, obviously they fought a war and conquered the continent and all that, but they did so because they happen to know how to use Ragnite better than everyone else. And it even flat out mentioned that it's just a very more refined, more purified usage and uh, sample of Ragnite. And I like that, because it means they're using the same general tools that everyone is now, just, just a little bit better. Which also could imply that, you know, at some point in time, just about everyone could be a Valky uh, Valkyria. I mean, Lord knows that Maximilian was able to artificially imbue himself with it, but I digress. Um, so I want to talk about the prototype tank, and I, I keep not saying its name because I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Uh, the Idlevice? That's, that's, that's the only attempt I'm going to make there. Um, <laughs> but I like it. I like it. It's, it's a neat puzzle piece. First of all, it helps, uh, it, it helps set up why the player character is capable in lore, because we have what is effectively a super tank on our side. And I mean, yes, uh, Welkin himself obviously is a very intelligent person, and that's displayed many times. I'll talk about Welkin in a minute. But it, I always like a story that helps to explain why the player character can accomplish things that others can't. And in my opinion, the Edelweiss and Welkin... Oh, I said I wouldn't try it again. The tank and Welkin are the two best examples for why we can accomplish so much, whereas just about everyone else can't. I mean, obviously, Alicia can and uh, will do some things. And there's actually a few hints early on uh, as far as Alicia's true nature, which I actually kind of like the foreshadowing on that. But point being, I like its establishment as the why we can accomplish what others can't thing, and 
the other thing I like about the Autobice is it makes perfect sense in lore. See, here's the thing. Again, anybody who's actually a World War II history buff will know, you look at a mega tank like that and you think, well, why didn't they make more of that? Well, those history buffs will know the answer to that question. It basically boils down to practicality and money. The, eco the economics of producing tanks during World War II are honestly so fascinating. I could probably just talk about that one subcategory of that subject for a while because I am a huge geek of all three fields, uh, engineering, econ economy, and war, and I suppose history as well if you want to get into that. But the point is you have this mega tank. It's very well built, very, very well processed. It has amazing armor and, and capacity and shields and power. But that kind of tank is going to be really, really expensive and hard to mass-produce properly. So they didn't. So there's just the one. Yours. And again, I like that because that makes perfect sense. You know, everyone else is using the the, the basic level of tanks. Or indeed, most, most of the Galleon forces aren't using tanks at all. Um, and really, really terrible rifles, if I'm, on, if I'm honest. But let's move on, let's move on. Um... So, obviously, there's a lot of elitism in the story. I already mentioned the Darkson several times. There's also a lot of elitism between the military regulars, you know, the, the Reds. Uh, I shouldn't call them that. That's an old term. The, the regulars and the militia, and then the non-Darksons to the Darksons, and then the aristocracy to the non-aristocracy. And there's also, like, individual elitism, too, like Gregor is a great example of that. And I found it interesting how much elitism was on display. It, it, I could all arguably say that, you know, I mentioned the earlier theme of wars paid for with the blood of the common folk as the main theme of the game. Uh, a strong contender for that is elitism. <laughs> just, just that word in giant bold print on the center of the screen, you know. Because holy crap, it actually boggles my mind how stupid so many of the characters in this game could be. And when I really started, started thinking about that, I think that was done deliberately in inverse contrast. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you're painting something, you can try to make something really, really bright or really strong colors to draw attention to it, or you can do the opposite and have bright colors all over here, except in this one spot, which draws your attention to it. Make sense? You know, it's, it's the inverse, uh, there's actually a term, it's like inverse focal point or something like that. I mention that because the one thing I kept being reminded of throughout the course of the game is that Welkin's one true character trait was that he was competent. I actually have very, very few notes about him. In fact, I have two sentences scribbled down about Welkin as a character. Uh, one is his relation to uh, Maximilian, and the other is, is, is what I just basically mentioned. He is, so Welkin is a geek which I think helps make him relatable. But what I like about him is he's a geek without mocking that. Too often fiction will present a geek and they'll be socially awkward or you know, incapable of proper hygiene or take things to an excessive extreme, you know, that kind of a thing. It's rare to see fiction portray a geek as just a guy or just a girl, you know, just, just a person, in other words, who is like, hey, yeah, I'm really into such and such. And, of course, his geek knowledge does serve to be rather useful throughout the course of the game, which actually makes sense when you're doing a ground-level war. Like he, In other words, Welkin makes an excellent front-line commander because he's up there on the front and can look at things and say, well, this is the direction we should go, or this is how this river works, or whatever. 
he would be a terrible grand strategy commander because he wouldn't be on the front at that point. He would just be like, okay, he's just looking at lines on a paper, and that doesn't tell him anything. So Welkin was well positioned for that. So he's not like some grand military genius. He just happens to know, and he happens to be very observant uh, with his particular thing. It's also a nice comparison to Faldio, actually, while I'm on the subject. Faldio was an interesting character in the sense that he felt a little bit more of an expository bucket than anything else. You know, the kind of person who's there to just uh, talk about the politics and the history of the setting. But I didn't mind because they actually bothered to establish that before he starts expositing. He is the guy who was who was actually at a university and was you know very well uh, versed in his particular field, which happened to include uh, archaeology. So it makes sense that he would know a lot of this stuff and can then share it with the the player be, through sharing that with the rest of the party who wouldn't know this stuff. So it's it's good exposition again. Um, <clears throat> but the other thing that's interesting to me about Welkin is that he again he's intelligent, he's competent. And he's unbiased. In a game where so much elitism is all over the place, Welkin doesn't have a scrap of it in him. He's even kind to the enemy troops. There's this great scene, uh, I don't know, like halfway through the game, something something like that, where he and Alicia are at this cabin, and there's this gentleman, Frisk, or Fritz, Fritz or something like that. I, I can't remember his exact name, forgive me. Uh, I didn't even write it down. This just occurred to me right now. Where the, the, the soldier was dying. It was an enemy soldier. It was an imperial soldier. And so they tried to take care of him, and they ended up burying him. And so Imperial troops come by, and the squad commander comes by and says, you know, why'd you do this? And Welkin says, because he was a person. He has not a scrap of, of that elitist bias within him. And again, that, hel that helps to add to his characterization by virtue of the fact that so many other characters are so elitist. While I'm on the topic, really quick, I just want to say, they did a good job with the Imperial troops, I think, in this game. Um, there are some cartoonishly evil ones, there's some noble, decent folk, and there's a lot of people who are just doing their jobs, or are kind of biased, but don't really want to do with this, or don't really want to be in the war, but they have to support it. You know, there's a good range of the Imperial troops, so good, good job on that as well. Um, so I mentioned Faldio. I already talked about him. Uh, Alicia is also interesting with regards to Welkin, because Alicia is a little less human than him. I, and I don't just mean because she's a Valkyrer. What I mean by that is... There's no nice way to say this. It's going back to the whole cold calculus thing. You know, A good commander is someone who is less human. A bad... You know what I, you know what I mean by that? A personable, I care about you, I get involved in your daily life on a personal, you know, hour-to-hour -hour basis person, arguably is not going to be a good commander, at least on a higher uh, scale or tier. Maybe it would be a good squad commander, which Welkin is admittedly. But the point being, Alicia helps Welkin to become a better commander and to help kind of intercede and get involved with his squad several times throughout the course of the game, which I find fantastic because then he helps her to be more human. He's the he's more of the moral center, more of the the grounding point for her. I don't want to say anchor because that implies he's just holding her down. What I mean is he helps her to not lose herself. It is logical and understandable why these two end up growing so close together throughout the course of the game because of their interactions with each other and the fact that they're they're you know both people who are of relatively young age who are involved in a war. I mean, it's very logical that that kind of thing uh, comes across. I talked about this previously in my uh, Trails in the Sky uh, rumination. I already mentioned Asara. Oh, God. Nice note, by the way. 
Isara's plane is the one that saves Alicia and Welkin at the end of the game. I don't know if, how deliberate that was. I think it was very deliberate. But, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, dude, it's her plane. And I wrote a note about it. And then they called attention to it like twice. And I'm like, oh, come on. That's too obvious. But it was a nice touch that Isara, even after she was dead, was still helping the party, still supporting them. Just nice little touch there. Last things I want to talk about. You notice I've barely talked about Maximilian or, or Silvari, and that's because, in my opinion, there's not a lot to talk about except in how they relate to the other characters. So let's look at Maximilian. Now, Maximilian is very focused on himself. This is a rare example of this. Like, for, let, let me use the, the FF12 parallel again for a second here. Vane was an arguably evil man. Now, we debated this when we were going through the FF12 lore run, and we could debate this even further. But the point being, Vane, it was debatable how evil he was. He was definitely extremely pragmatic and very cynical, but evil. How much malice, how much malevolent intent, how much selfish uh, perspective was behind him is debatable. I, in my opinion, you cannot debate that about Maximilian, and here's my reason why. Selvaria managed to reach out to and appreciate the circumstances Alicia was in. And Alicia managed to understand and have a greater uh, perspective on Silvaria by the, you know, during her great sacrifice. Uh, Welkin, of course... <sighs> See, Maximilian parallels to Silvaria in one direction and Welkin in another direction. He and Silvaria, Maximilian and Silvaria, both basically lost everything. She was, you know, a test subject, being experimented on, ripped from her family and mother, blah, blah. So he, he and she both are in the kind of circumstances that are tragic, right? Horrible circumstances. But in Silvaria's case, she led her life in devotion to others, and another in specific, Maximilian, and again was capable of having empathy and caring for others, as we see in her DLC, which I actually had to watch, not play, because I couldn't get a hold of the copy of it for some reason. Um, so, she was... She took that pain that she went through and tried to focus it on external, helping others, trying to be a better person for others. Maximilian took all the pain and, and tragedy that he went through and focused it completely inwards. All he cared about was himself. All he cared about was his pain. What he went through as a mere child was acceptable reasoning to do all that he did. To found this new empire, to, to, to make, make a new empire where mother's blood is the only blood and the emperor shall rule rather than this, this aristocrat. It's funny because it's another example of me kind of agreeing with the villain and his motives, but at the same time er, er, completely disagreeing with the why and the method. You know what I mean? Because Maximilian just wanted to be at the top of the heap so that he would have his revenge and he would have satisfied his pain. He didn't care about Silvaria. He didn't care about the people under him or the rest of the Empire. He cared about himself. Which brings me to Welkin. Because Welkin doesn't care about elitism or bias or racial prejudice or any of the other crap that, that goes throughout the game. And neither does Maximilian. Maximilian is totally cool with the, the, the Dark Sons or with the Valkyria or with whoever. It Do doesn't matter doesn't matter as long as you're capable of doing something. But the thing is, Welkin sees a person. Maximilian sees a skill set. 
In many ways, Maximilian also parallels Welkin because Welkin's that ground commander. He cares about his squad. His squad is his second family. Maximilian is the higher tier commander, the marshal behind the invasion, if you will. And he cares about what you can accomplish for, the, for his overall goals. Now the thing is, while that makes sense, Maximilian practices that to extremity. Even Silvaria and her devotion to him, which he is fully aware of, I'm sorry, is nothing more than another skill set for him to utilize for his plans. Nothing more. I'm sorry, but the scene where he pretty much says, alright, go kill yourself, bothered me a lot. Almost as much as it bothered me that she did it. Although that was a great scene. And it was wonderful to see General Fatty McIdiot to, to, to be annihilated by what is effectively a nuke, complete with mushroom cloud. That's another quick thing I want to say here. I do like the fact that the Valkyria, the Valkyrie, whatever, uh, obviously superhuman in their own way, but ultimately can can only be a truly devastating weapon at the sacrifice of themselves. It helps to bring them, you know, grounded again. It helps to bring things down a little bit. I really, really liked going through this game. It was a, a surprising treat, and I hope you've enjoyed me sitting here rambling about it for a bit, and I hope to see you guys next time.